Hello, long time no listen. So it's May 4th, 2023. I'm recording this from my closet studio, and it's so nice to be back in here. And it is also the Lonely Palette's seventh birthday. Apparently, that means it can start telling time and understanding that words have more than one meaning, which I very much appreciate. And I wanted to give you a quick update on the state of the show, since I know it's been a while. Yes, I am still making it. The new season is going to be starting next month on a proper, consistent, monthly release schedule, the first Wednesday of each month. And we're going to be looking at a whole new bouquet of artists, including Helen Frankenthaler and Cy Twombly and Barbara Kruger and James Abbott McNeil Whistler, and of course, Bob Ross. We're also planning interviews and more good stuff, so go ahead and smash that subscribe button right now. And thank you so much for your patience low these last five months. I also wanted to take a quick minute to remind you that you, dear listener, you keep the Lonely Palette going. You keep our lights on. And when the lights start to flicker, I've got to run away to some paying gigs and leave you in the dark, which I really hate to do. So please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. We've got some great perks, including swag and picking up again this month a third Thursday monthly Zoom meetup spotlight talk conversation, it's fun, for the $10 per episode and above high rollers. And don't forget that we also do virtual tours for your corporate and private events. You can commission episodes of the show for your institution. We've got a newsletter you can subscribe to with a cheeky roundup of art-related news. And we've got baby onesies and coffee mugs and water bottles and stickers and pins and more that you can buy at our store. <sighs> and you can find everything on the website, thelonelypalette.com. But okay, enough promotion, get to the gifts. Here is a little gift to you. And really, it was to me. Um, I got to record this live episode taping at the end of February at On Air Fest in Brooklyn. It's an episode that you may have already heard, Mary Kelly's postpartum document, but it's been updated a little bit better to meet our moment, and the kid's a little older. So it was a really wonderful experience with an incredible audience. Thank you to them. Thank you to you. Thank you for listening and supporting the show, even just by listening. Happy birthday, Lonely Palette, and I'll see you in June. Here's Mary Kelly's postpartum document at On Air Fest. Okay, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast Penthouse, presented by Simplecast. Um, every half hour on the half hour, that's not intuitive to say, every half hour on the half hour, there will be podcasts. Uh, you're ready for the next one. Um, up now is uh, a show about all the visual things that you can't hear. You can see them, you can't hear them. It's the visual arts podcast, um, The Lonely Palette. Uh, it's hosted by Tamar Abishai. And I think we're ready to go, right? You're all ready to go? So. Okay, I'm going to leave you to it. All right. Hi. Okay. I'm actually going to start micless. So, because I actually have the luxury of a screen, which a podcast doesn't really have, this is kind of a hybrid experience. And I'm going to ask you something that most 
will do the mic. Okay, burlap with printed stuff. What else? Yeah, a shirt. Okay, yeah. Anything else? Imagine you are. Imagine somebody is listening to a podcast and they can't see what you're seeing. One more. Shout it out. Oh, nice. <laughs> the shout turn. Okay, great. Okay, Caitlin, you, you do the last it's one. A, it's a triptych. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, three images. Obviously, it's not all the same. Okay. I don't know how many of you ever took an art history course, but that is step one. Step one. Just describe what, you look at, what you're looking at. So, step two. This is the Lonely Palette. The podcast that returns art history to the masses, one object, or today, series of objects at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. And today we're going to look at Mary Kelly's postpartum document from 1973 to 78. But it means that we're going to get a little personal. I'm going to get a little a lot personal. And we're going to start by time traveling back to an awful time. I don't know how many of you went to Krista Tippett's show today, but she really dug into this. Two years ago, exactly, to February 2021. We don't have the vaccine yet. It's cold. We're lonely. And we're locked down. And we're unmoored. And we're hitting a wall. I was on the phone with my mom, which I always did to comfort myself, even when it doesn't necessarily work. And in the course of our conversation, something happened to me that has happened to everybody since, at least once, since March of 2020. I realized that I couldn't tell what day of the week it was. I screwed up my brain and tried to find some purchase, but it just wouldn't come to me. We all know how, before the pandemic, each day of the week has its own unique, imperceptible quality to it. Monday has fresh momentum. Wednesdays are productive, but kind of bloodless. Sundays feel like the end of the summer. And now all of that was replaced with a smooth, blank wall. We knew, on some rational level, that the pandemic would mean losing hugs and restaurant meals, but we didn't consider this kind of loss, the untethering of time itself. My mom responded with a chuckle. I heard a good one the other day, she said. We used to have days of the week. Now every day is Blur's Day. I dare you to find a single mom during the pandemic who didn't make that joke when you called her. But it's a good line. And not just because it rings so true for the pandemic and it's something that we all understand, but because that joke is an old chestnut on loan from a very specific demographic, one that I had been a part of since the summer before. Because I had been living in months of blurs days by the time the pandemic hit. Because I was the mother of a freshly born baby. I had been living that cottony haze as hours bled into hours, days into nights, into days into nights. Babies aren't born with a circadian rhythm. They need to develop them. And that means that as a new parent, you lose yours. 3 a.m., 3 p.m., sunlight, moonlight, it's all the same. 
The previous decade of my life had been structured by a nine to five, the distinct borders between weekends and weekdays, and the 7.51 train to get to work on time and beating the 11 o'clock a.m. grocery store rush on Sundays. And now all of it, all of it, my life, my normal, fell away, dissolved, disappeared. Structure was meaningless in the sleepless, broken hours spent staring into the face of this squeaking little baby who stared back in equal wonder. Our most urgent needs, food going in, food coming out, and the crashing waves of sleep became the only indication that time was actually passing. How can I even really describe those first days and weeks of my son's life? Someone once told me that it's impossible to actually conjure the memory of pain. And when I think back to that time, I realize that I can't actually conjure the fatigue, only the small, poignant details. The warm light of the bedside lamp in the middle of the night, staring at his impossibly tiny yet wholly complete fingers. I remember how simple it was to feed him and so stressful to feed me. <laughs> How attempting to follow recipes brought me to frustrated tears. How desperate I was to leave the house and then how desperately I missed him when I did. And more than anything, I remember how separate I felt from the world on a solitary rocket ship to the moon. Life became a series of contradictions. Everything was both itself and its total opposite depending on the hour. I remember feeling giddy to bursting with love, and I remember feeling really wrung out and desperate. My rocket ship was perfectly cozy and fit to our scale and completely claustrophobic. I had, nestled in my arms, the exact person who made me feel whole, and I was really lonely. I was on this thrilling, far-flung adventure, sitting in the same spot on my couch unmoving for hours, wearing the same clothes, steeped in my own gentle stink, the existential silence of outer space guided entirely by sounds and whimpers and snorts and those deep, shuddery baby sighs. But for all of its nebulous haze, the fact is that I can revisit the nuts and bolts of those days anytime I want to. Because no sooner had this little body been evacuated from mine, I was handed a hospital chart to fill out. Which breast, how long, what time, how many ounces. As soon as he would wake up, I was to pop him on my nipple and start a timer. Countless doctors and nurses checked up on it and you know, I'm an A student, I wanted to impress them. And it wasn't just for them though, I needed it. I needed something, anything, that would give me back some control. This is not a shock to anyone who knows me. I'm a control freak, and control freaks are not great about giving up control. And control is in exceedingly short supply. From the moment of conception, to which hormones are released, to grow his spleen, to how long the labor takes, to how much milk you produce, to when he starts to talk. But, you know, you'd never know this from the app store. 
There are infinite ways to maintain the illusion of control, to process all of this with a tap. I was able to track my ovulation to the day. I know the exact moment of conception. As soon as I found out I was pregnant, I was able to check in weekly on what literal size the fruit growing in my womb was. A grape at nine weeks, a grapefruit at 23 weeks. With the first labor spasm, I was searching for apps to time the length between contractions, to tell me when it was happening, and I think, I hoped, what was happening. Because even though my entire job that day was to give up control and just get out of my body's way so it could do this primal thing that it was built to do, the data is still there, charting, structuring this experience in bits and bytes. And whether or not this kind of neurotic charting creates more stress on a larger level, I know that it comforted me in the moment. It gave me back a sense of control. And it made me understand, maybe the only thing that could make me understand on a molecular level, what the artist Mary Kelly was all about. Because let's be real. I was introduced to the work of Mary Kelly in a college art history course. And like every college student, I rolled my eyes. Postpartum Document is her most famous series. It's the one that puts her in college survey art history courses, usually lumped together with other second wave feminists, feminist artists. And if you're familiar with many of those artists, Marina Abramovic, Carolee Schneeman, Judy Chicago, artists whose work might be described as strongly vaginal, then you and I would be predisposed to dismiss Kelly. Come on, girl, you would say with all the inflated confidence of a college student taking her first art history course. You're working alongside women artists who pour their souls into reclaiming their woman bodies. These are artists breaking out of the gaze, or subsuming it, or subverting it. They're finally making it about them. And here you are, obsessively tracking the birth of your son. Because this is what postpartum document is on its face. A series of six sections mounted as a seemingly endless progression of individually framed works, essays, images, and footnotes documenting every inch of her baby's development, his feedings, his diaper changes down to the poop-stained cloth liners, his babbles, his scribbles, every little token gifted by his chubby toddler hand, all charted and described with a precision that I, at the time, and maybe you now, could only have described as psychotic. And worse, unfeminist. To devote this freshly liberated female body to another person, and to devote your artistic life tracking something that only the mother of that specific baby could ever possibly be interested in, it felt retrograde and trivial. I mean, Carolee Schneeman was painting canvases with her own goddamn vagina. Mary Kelly, all you did was become a mom. And worse, the kind of insufferable mom who shows the entire photo burst when just one would have sufficed. <laughs> but let's sit with that for a moment. All she did was become a mom. 
the idea that all women did, that all our moms did, was become moms. That making and caring for new life is so common that we stop seeing it for the tremendously profound thing that it is. And it raises a big, fat, thorny question. Not just for moms, but for artists like Mary Kelly or anybody trying to tell this story at all. How can something be so transcendently life-altering in theory and yet so mundane in practice? I was thinking about this the other day. As my son sat calmly on my lap, turning the pages of his latest Mo Willems book, this was the leap off the side of the world. This small, innocuous body with his little curls swinging his little pajamaed legs. This is my greatest joy these days, seriously, watching him happily shake a container of cupcake sprinkles. But it is. <laughs> and parenting exists in these contrasts. At once, everything and nothing, obvious and obliterating. But unlike all the other existential paradigm shifts that humans experience, like death or falling in love, parenting is treated differently. Because it's a choice, right? We choose to take the leap. We choose to undergo the Copernican revolution in our own lives, to no longer be the center of our own universes. And it stands to reason that if something was a choice, then there's a clear metric for determining if it was the correct choice or if it's being done correctly or incorrectly. That it's possible, as all the mommy sites try to tell us it is, to rationally track motherhood. These contradictions, these metrics, the tedium, the labor, the leap, these are all the issues that postpartum document tries to unpack. And it's the contradictions in particular that give the work its spine. Like with motherhood itself, postpartum document is both everything and its opposite. It's an attempt to view an exposed human heart through an objective scientific filter. It's an anthropological project that elevates motherhood to an academic social science that can be understood through enough observation and dissection, through the authority of theoretical analysis. And it's a deeply ironic parody of an approach like that, from the formal typewritten cataloging that's covered with crayon scribbles to the Rorschach-like poop stains. But also, at its core, it's a comfort, a quiet tethering for a struggling new mom named Mary Kelly, who is clearly trying to understand something that transcends our understanding, our language, to pin down feelings that can't ever be processed in real time, only exquisitely remembered with a whiff of baby shampoo. This attempt at objective rationalism is her own attempt to make sense of what cannot be made sense of, and maybe to feel a little less unhinged in the moment by manufacturing an anthropological framework around it. Deciphering his babbles, as only a mother can do, reinforces her value as his mother. Measuring his poop with mathematical precision addresses the anxiety that she's not feeding him enough. In her own words, 
When this work was first shown in the context of conceptual art, this is before disposable nappies, or before disposable diapers, they had something which was like a liner that you put in a cloth diaper. And it's really that, the stain on that liner that I kind of used as the evidence of how well I was doing <laughs> with the feeding. <laughs> and there was actually no other way <laughs> to go about this. It was all evidence of how well I was doing. If you track his progress, you're tell she's telling herself, then you can track your own. And you can reassure yourself, as every other must, every mother must, that you're not fucking it all up. And so let's take a minute too and consider how postpartum documents intrinsic contradictions met their own art historical moment. Images of mothers and children are perhaps the most primal pillar of visual culture, given the biblical references, of course, to the Madonna and child, and we've got two of the Ninja Turtles covered right here, Donatello on the left and Raphael on the right. The genre essentially peaked in the 19th century with the tender French Impressionist paintings of Bert Morisot and Mary Cassatt, who had been confined to their own domestic settings by dint of their sex and their class, and therefore painted what they had access to, that is, children. But these images had fallen out of favor by the middle of the 20th century, and certainly by the 1970s, where the artistic discourse of second wave feminism, as we said, saw itself explicitly about liberation from the body, from the gaze, and especially from the home, that is, home-making. So when Mary Kelly first began to show the series in 1976, its perceived quote-unquote anti-feminist quote-unquote backsliding was laughed out of the room. Moreover, like with most newcomers to the work, maybe you included, all people could really focus on were the diapers. After the Tate's bricks come the dirty nappies, the headline of the evening standard blared obnoxiously as though the move from, sorry, from minimalism to motherhood was something to mourn. It's art because I say so, the caption reads under her photo, as though she's no more of an artist than a mom enforcing some arbitrary curfew. But, thank God, little by little, the discourse deepened and textured and the work's revelatory nuances started to shine. Hiding elements of motherhood had become such a fixture of feminist art that to show them became the bravest thing a woman artist could do. And not as an idealized 19th century love letter to domesticity, or as a 1970s bragging right of a woman having it all, but showing it off in all of its invisibility in the profundity of what is so easily dismissed. Many women artists in the 70s, especially fiber artists, artists who dabbled in three dimensions, were also exploring what it meant to reclaim what had been derided as women's work, the typically unseen labor of simply being domestic, the exhaustion and the dignity, the creativity of the craft. And these diaper linings, so easy to mock at first glance, were unlike any account of motherhood that the art world had ever been exposed to, 
especially after those gauzy Impressionist paintings of women and children. Those stained diapers represent not only the relentless tedium of the work of motherhood, uh, the strand of beads with no knot, as my mother-in-law likes to say, but of the corporeal reality of motherhood, the bodies themselves, their functions and fluids and smells that moms, because they're moms, don't actually mind that much. And this larger plea to take the work seriously is reinforced and maybe even satirized by Kelly's use of these arcane theoretical frameworks. And picture it. From the first section onwards, a baby, this little fluff-headed nugget, is cranked through the cogs of Lacanian and Freudian analysis. Sexual compulsions, phallic associations, gendered labor, and the foundational aspects of adult socialization. It's a lot. Kelly stamps onesies, onesies with these Lacanian visualizations. She takes the not exactly unfounded eroticization of breastfeeding and takes it to a totally overreaching Freudian conclusion. And it becomes kind of difficult to take the work seriously, which is maybe her point. As any feminist artist will attest, art theory and philosophy in general, let's be honest, have been unequivocally shaped by a patriarchy, by men. And maybe Kelly is showing us that using this methodological framework to explain objectively the relationship between a baby and her mo- and a mother and her baby is just as absurd from a distance when they do it as it is up close when she does it. And at the same time, she's using the master's tools. The formal clinical language of this framework lends an academic authority to an otherwise highly dismissible subject matter of taking care of a squishy little baby. It elevates these objects, the onesies and diaper liners and the Rosetta Stone of her son's scribbles. These objects are so easily forsaken so inevitably thrown away, yet they become invaluable artifacts of human archaeology, a testament to the way that we as a species develop. Measuring out humanity in plastic baby spoons. On a macro level, these objects are a way of articulating why we matter at all. And on a micro level, they also explain why, to our moms, those old, tattered, and stained receiving blankets are more valuable than diamonds. Because again, it's the mother's perspective here that we really care about. She is the author of a text that is tracking her own evolution alongside her child's, documenting her own internal conversations alongside the conversations she's learning to have with her son. And in looking at these, we see this empirical framework kind of dissolve from objective to subjective, from anthropological to anxious, as her own rocket ship has left the atmosphere. In every one of the six sections of the work, each tracking an overarching developmental stage that aligns with her son's age, her observations are detached and pragmatic and then conclude with a sweeping, heartbreakingly vulnerable question about what it all amounts to. What have I done wrong 
she asks, following the first section on feedings and fecal analysis, and echoing every mother, myself included, who has ever stood vexed and tearful over her newborn's empty diaper. Why don't I understand, she asks, after the second section on speech development. The third section on markings and scribbles pivots self-consciously outward. Why is he like that? The fourth on transitional objects, what do you want? And onward to the final section, when he's five years old and now able to write the alphabet, which to her signifies the completion of the artwork. Her son is now capable of becoming the author of the text. And she, the mother, asks, what will I do? And this drives home maybe the most powerful aspect of the work, loss, separation. Both a mother from herself at first and then a mother from her child. Having devoted herself so completely to this baby and then losing him quite appropriately to the natural terms of his own development. And this speaks to what is actually the most striking contradiction in the series, I think. The idea that an experience so ephemeral can be recorded, captured in its tracks, placed beneath glass, able to be revisited. For all of the comfort, maybe, that the charting gave Kelly in real time, and for all of the larger societal elements that her art was tapping into, one also has to imagine that she was simply trying to hold on to moments as they were slipping away. Motherhood is rightly referred to as the longest, shortest time. Moments and phases that feel interminable actually go by in a flash. Maybe she was trying to capture the feeling of being caught in those moments. Or maybe she was recording them so that she could revisit them when she actually had the emotional wherewithal to even though by then, they'd be long gone. That was certainly my hope, because I also recorded everything. And it's not like I was thinking about Mary Kelly, not explicitly, when I brought my microphone into my doctor's visits or to my delivery room, or when I hold it up to my son's face now. It wasn't some intentional project, like, hey, I'm an audio producer, maybe I can get some good tape to file away to make something really poignant in the future. But it's why I'm an audio producer at all, why all of us are. Because we know that recreating a sense of time and space after a moment has passed is invaluable. Nothing takes you back there like sounds do. Nothing else can so powerfully envelop you and recreate a lost moment, especially one that's meant to be lost.
Maybe I did do it for some of the same reasons that she did. You do this kind of thing in the moment because it makes the moment feel real when you can't trust your own headspace. You do it because the idea of a future in this impossibly untethered, relentless present is so absurd that you're almost daring time to pass for these recordings to hurry up and become nostalgic. You do it because you can't pay the attention in the moment that you'd want to, because the sacred is completely swallowed up by the mundane, because there's too much to think about. It's too new, and you're too tired. You do it because in these moments, there are no words. And I can't help but think about Mary Kelly when I listen back to these now. Because what actually strikes me the most is hearing myself change. As a mom, doing it all for the first time, which I'll never do again. And I have another kid who I feel kind of bad for right now, but <laughs> think about being the second kid, right? Um, I'm struck by how comfortable I sound how increasingly unselfconscious in my role, even though I remember feeling like I was flailing and failing. I'm struck by how much these tapes sound like my own mom with me. It's amazing how our voices are almost indistinguishable now. And look, maybe these recordings aren't interesting to anyone but me, or maybe him someday, but maybe they are. Maybe they can feel a new new mom feel a little less alone. And though postpartum documents and my own recordings all speak to a kind of loss, they're also ultimately and with the much wider and wiser lens of experience about gain too, about stretching out your own surprisingly elastic life to make room for someone else's and for more love than you ever thought possible. And you're not only making enough space for them to stay alive, but you're giving them all that extra wiggle room to help them thrive. Someone had to do that for you, and it was, in all likelihood, the most poignant experience of their life. So let's not think about this as an artwork just about motherhood or a mother, when it's really about everyone who has ever had one. In other words, it's about everyone. And let's also stop rolling our eyes at Mary Kelly, please. Let's stop dismissing her as some obsessive mother, as just a mother. Let's think instead about the hard-earned wisdom that moms, and especially new moms, can teach us about this moment that we've all just lived through. 
because we all just got through a global pandemic, one day at a time. And I say this, of course, as someone lucky enough to both be a mom when I wanted to be, and lucky enough to have been able to stay home. But look, no matter what, it's hard. We have all just lost years of normalcy to blurs days, and we're all coming back to each other. We're gathering at conferences together, and we're out of practice, and it's a little weird. And new moms, they see you. And they're here to tell you, as only moms can, that they're proud of you for getting through this. We're finding the new normal on the other side with those weekends and train schedules. And because our adaptable lizard brains leave us no choice, we're slowly forgetting how those last few years felt. We can't just conjure it up, this untethering from time, what it really feels like when you don't know what day of the week it is. And because we forget, we need to really actively try to hang on to that wisdom, that empathy, that compassion for each other, for ourselves, and hopefully for all those new, new moms who are, as we speak, not here, they're sitting in their divot on the couch, staring at their babies, simultaneously weightless and crushed, and isolated from the very species that they're perpetuating. We see you, moms. And maybe it took this pandemic to understand, maybe the only thing that could make us understand, on a molecular level, what you've been going through. And we're sorry that it took the mother of all reminders to get here. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.